Welcome to the Creek Default Podcast, where we discuss the latest news, laws, and trends affecting your industry. Welcome back to the Creek Default Podcast. I'm your host, George Lepinotis. I'm joined today by our podcast's frequent flyer, Ms. Shelly Jackson. Shelly, thank you for being back. Thank you, George. I'm thrilled to be here. Shelly, remind our listeners on your practice and what area of law you specifically spend a lot of your time on here at Creek Devault. Sure. So I'm a partner in the healthcare and employment law practice groups. So I spend a lot of my time working on uh, those two areas. There's quite a bit of overlap. So I spend quite a bit of time supporting healthcare employers and making either general employment law decisions and risk management or on things that are specific to those healthcare employers. And I know that your practice is diversified, but today we're talking about something that is very interesting and unique. And you're going to tell me more about how this came to be a topic for you, but it is, it's a topic that I am interested in because I have seen what I'll call an elevation in our society of the domesticated animal and, and what role those animals play in our world. We are talking specifically today about the service animal um, and, and even more specifically about emotional support animals and, and, and how they come into uh, being and how they interact with the rest of our society. Is that f- a fair way of saying it? It is. It, we are certainly focusing on two different types of support that animals can provide humans in navigating the world. One is as a service animal. One is as an emotional support animal. So let's start with that distinction. I think that most of us are probably aware of the service animal component when it comes to maybe those who are visually impaired. Right? I, I think that's a great example of how we traditionally see service animals. Service animals under federal law are a defined term. They typically are dogs, but there is also actually a rule that implements service animal designations that includes miniature horses. So by definition, (laughs) under federal law, a service animal must be either a dog or in certain circumstances, a miniature horse. I have a nine-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old daughter at home who might just accidentally develop a condition that requires a service animal now that we know that it can be a miniature horse. It is an it is a little known but but um, and so, component of the service animal. Profession. And so, by federal law, it can either be a canine or a miniature horse. And when we say miniature horse, how big are we talking about? I don't know the parameters of what constitutes a miniature horse as opposed to a full size horse. I do know that they are genetically distinct. So it's not okay. just a little horse. <laughs> there is a specific type and breed of horses that are considered miniature horses. My nine year old would find it glorious to ride into third grade on a miniature horse. <laughs> calling it a service animal. So we'll have to you'll, we'll have to hire you to help her with that challenge. <laughs> so um, tell me, when it comes to the service animal, that's the, that's the component that is governed by federal law. Uh, is that the floor? Do states have further restrictions or further rights? Obviously, a state can't have anything that restricts below the federal mandate, right? The federal mandate is as low as you're going to be able to get. Do states have, are, are states allowed to authorize further types of animals to qualify or, or broader protections for servants animals? Yes, indeed. Uh, states and, and even in localities can have the option to pass additional measures which provide protection in a number of contexts. And there are actually multiple federal laws that come into play as it relates to 
service animals, and then also emotional support animals, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but yes, there are there are multiple federal statutes that address this, as well as some state and sometimes even local provisions. Okay, well, you know what? Let's not go too far with it because I think that we are talking about the two. So we know what the service animal is. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the emotional support animal. That is somewhat of a, dis of a different distinction category. It is. So one of the hallmarks of a service animal is that the service animal is actually trained to provide a particular service to an individual with a disability. That might be, in the example you gave earlier, a dog that is trained to assist a vision impaired person in navigating the world. An emotional support animal does not have any particularized training to allow it to, ass to assist or serve the individual, but by virtue of its presence and by virtue of its uh, activities in that individual's life, they can assess, uh, assist excuse me, with um, mental or emotional impairments that the individual may have. So it may have, for example, a calming influence. It may have, for example, an opportunity for the person to disengage from the world around them by simply engaging with that animal. But the animal itself isn't required to have a specific type of training to enable it to do that. It's just by virtue of the relationship between human and animal. Now, with the service animal, I believe that we're talking, but that's an interesting distinction, that the animal actually has received specialized training in order to accomplish the service to the human. And the human has a specific ailment. And, and I'm, in my fair to, is it right to say that with a service animal, the ailment is physical? Um, a service animal can actually provide um, assistance with a physical or a mental impairment. Okay. So the, the service animal is there to help with whatever the human impairment is and is trained to overcome it. Correct. With a comfort animal, there is no specialized training to the animal. It may just be that its, it's presence is, is enough. Is, are there specific recognized impairments where you would qualify legally to have an emotional support animal? That's a great question, and there are a couple of contexts to determine that answer. The first one is that the Americans with Disabilities Act, which governs employment and public accommodations, among other things, does not expressly recognize emotional support anim animals. They are not part of the ADA definition um, definitions or, or law. So in that context, there's not going to be federal protection under that law. There are other federal laws that do come into play. An example would be federal housing laws and federal aviation laws that do recognize emotional support animals. And that's a little bit of a long-winded way of saying that the criteria for an emotional support animal will be driven by whatever laws or regulations apply in that specific context in terms of whether they are eligible or whether they are able to perform whatever, um, whatever benefits to the individual with um, a mental or an emotional impairment. And then that also extends to state and even local laws. As you sit here and talk, I'm, I'm a little bit flabbergasted, and, and, and I'm a lawyer, at the complexity of the topic. It seems like, you know, I like to start most of my legal analysis with some basic questions. And I mean basic, I mean most every matter I've ever had in my career, I start with the who, what, where, when, and how. Mm -hmm. You know, and in this, when we're looking at that, um, you know, life is ripe with different circumstances. And so I take it that between state and federal law, those who have needs of these animals, whether it be a service or a comfort animal, have 
to figure out if they have the rights, depending on the when and the where, right? You mentioned federal aviation law. Let's go there because I have noticed in, in as, as I've traveled more in, in my life that um, a, a broader prevalence of service animals on airplanes. Mm-hmm. Does federal law protect a comfort animal on an airplane? So emotional support animals are offered a level of protection uh, under federal aviation law. Okay. So when you say a level, what does that mean? That means that so long as that animal satisfies the, the definitional requirements of what constitutes an emotional support animal, that that animal would be permitted to fly with, with their, um, to engage in avi- you know, aviation-related activities with their owner. Um, there are some requirements, though, of animals in terms of how they are moving through the space, how are they, how they are contained, how they are, um, for example, potty trained, things like that, that, um, that address sort of how the animal may be present. But generally speaking, yes, the federal aviation um, laws do address emotional support animals. So if I'm blind and I need to fly to Hawaii, I have a dog that helps me navigate the world, there's no question that that dog is allowed on an airplane to fly with me. Correct. The dog is, however, specially trained in order to not only help me navigate the world, but also to navigate the world on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even know the technicalities of a long-haul flight like that. How would the animal control itself and be able to withstand its own physical needs during that time? But I'm sure there are provisions. With a and I think it's pretty cut and dried that someone has a visual impairment and they need the animal, the service animal. Is there an analysis of the individual to say that you qualify for an emotional support animal? And can it be as simple as, I'm going to miss my dog and I need it to come with me? Well, again, it would it would depend on the specific legal framework. Um, but f- with respect to emotional support animals, typically there is a certification process that would have to happen, not a training certification, but a cer- certification from uh, a healthcare provider that someone does have a particular disability and that this animal is an emotional support animal that will help uh, address uh, some aspect of that disability. And those requirements are typically spelled out in the statute. What you, have to, what you have to submit, what you have to show, and conversely, what you can't ask and what you can't require in terms of attempting to exclude an emotional support animal from, a, from an area where they're legally um, permitted to be. Shelley, I have been talking about flying because you brought that up, but uh, in your practice area, employment law, mm-hmm. right, and healthcare law, let's go there. So... As an accommodation, if someone qualifies for an emotional support animal, is the idea that the animal could come to work with the individual? So the Americans with Disabilities Act, which governs the right, it's the federal law that primarily governs the rights of individuals with disabilities in the workplace, does not recognize or define emotional support animals. So from a federal law perspective, there will not be that right to bring an emotional support animal to work. That doesn't mean that there aren't many, many employers who recognize and understand 
the benefits that an emotional support animal can have and choose to craft their own policies as it relates to emotional support animals, but they are distinct from service animals. From service animals, there is a legal obligation on the part of an employer that is covered by that particular legal framework, um, which is most employers, uh, 15 or more employees typically, uh, are the ones that are going to get pulled into the federal uh, legal guidelines. Um, from that perspective, those individuals or those workplaces must accommodate, but they can choose to accommodate an emotion, or an, excuse me, an emotional support animal. They are required to accommodate um, a service animal. Okay. And so legally they're not obligated, but they can choose to enact a policy. Are there any state laws in Indiana which is where we sit today, and I'm sure there are other states and other jurisdictions that you know of that do require that an employer accommodate the emotional support animal. Not in an employment context. Okay. Indiana has passed a housing requirements. It's a statute that I believe is called something like Emotional Support Animals in Housing. It's a very direct uh, title to the, to the statute. It addresses that issue in housing, but not, not in the context of employment. So housing is interesting as well, right? Because I guess what you're saying, and I haven't been a tenant for years, but looking back to my time living in apartments and such, there were places that did not allow pets. Yes. And so you're in the state of Indiana. Indiana law says that a landlord cannot prohibit an emotional support animal from residing in the premises so long as the tenant has that need, that recognized need. That's the basic element. But then there are other elements that have to be satisfied in order to permit that animal to essentially live in the premises and, and things that would allow it to live with the minimal disruption. So for example, if I had an emotional support animal that was also a vicious animal, that would not be required under the statute to say, hey, you've got to be able to have your vicious animal in an apartment where it could potentially harm others. Um, there is some um, indemnity provided or some uh, release from liability that's provided for landlords that comply with this housing requirement. Okay. So it does protect them in the event that there's an emotional support animal, there's some sort of an incident that happens, and uh, it shields them from liability so long as they've complied with the requirements of the statute. So hard to prove that a mountain lion is your support animal of choice. I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. And as we look to the future of this area, and I, you know, I, I told you before we went on the air, early in my career, I represented a family with an autistic boy who had a support animal, although that animal was very unique because I believe it was, and I, and I, I think you agreed with me, I think that animal served two functions because the autistic boy was not only had some emotional challenges, but also had a tendency to bolt or sprint away from what he perceived to be conflict or stressful situations. The animal was n not only there to comfort him before he bolted, but also was trained to track him down when he did bolt. And I'll never forget his dad telling me, he's the fastest human being I've ever seen when he wants to be. Um, so the dog really did play a prominent role and mm -hmm. the, the child would run out of the school. And the, the dog was really capable of bringing adults to the child before the child got into traffic or into a roadway or other things. I know that's a unique situation, but 
are, are we going to see it? Obviously, the therapy has some value or else we wouldn't be talking about it. Is that fair to say? You mean the use of emotional support? That's correct. The, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And and given its value, is it something that we're going to see more of? And are we going to have to figure out how to navigate that in more parts of life? Do you feel like? I think that we certainly see more individuals who are making a request to have an emotional support animal present with them in the various activities that they go through. With respect to the example that you gave, that animal ultimately was actually considered uh, a service animal under ADA, and so that family had a right for that, that animal to be present with the child. If there hadn't been that training component where he performed a specific function, that may have been a very different case. And so I, I am not aware of any proposed legislation on the horizon, that's not to say that it's not out there, I'm just not currently aware of it, that would, for example, amend the Americans with Disabilities Act sure. from an employment or a public accommodation context that would require um, the emotional support animals to be permitted on site. Um, not to say that it can't happen, but I think certainly as we become more aware both of the impact for individuals with disabilities who have mental or emotional disabilities in interacting with our world um, and navigating that world, I think this is a really critical tool that, that they're able to utilize to assist in navigating. From the other perspective, I think it does really require some thoughtful consideration of, of what, what spaces do we want to cultivate um, to provide those supports. And to date, housing, and aviation are the two where we have seen it at the broad federal level in a lot of different states, but that's not to say that it couldn't change. And then also, it's also very, it can be it can be regional in terms of what the approach might be. So certain states or certain localities may take or may already have taken those specific steps to expand their protection. Right, right. Moving on to the employer's perspective, we've talked a lot about the employee's perspective, the individual's perspective, but from an employer's perspective, where do you draw the line as far as the ability to do the job, right? I mean, there are certain situations, talk about the healthcare um, scenario. I mean, it'd be very hard to be a OR nurse with a emotional support animal. Is there, does the law provide for a baseline where it interferes with the functions of the job? Well, in an employment law context, the emotional support animal has no legal right to be there, so the employer is free to draw whatever lines they choose in, in determining that. But even the service animal, right? I mean, yeah. you're really not going to bring a service animal into an operating room, are you? So a service animal, there is a, an assessment of whether or not the service animal, um, whether the presence of the service animal would create some sort of um, negative impact within the environment. And that could be as acute and obvious as like you were saying in an operating room what's the context there are there ways to have a service animal that are um, that does allow that to happen are there certain restrictions that could be placed could the service animal stop at a certain part of the or of the location and, and allow for that um, area to be protected uh, and then there's also the idea of um, with service animals uh, things that are maybe less obvious for example if someone has a severe allergy to dogs, right? And so you would have an, a service animal who is permitted by law to be there with, with its um, owner, but there may also be someone within 
the organization that may have a very severe allergy and you have to coordinate those things. So it really isn't as simple a lot of times as saying, yes, it's fine, no, it's not okay. Um, it's a really kind of nuanced provision, but, but at the end of the day, with respect to a service animal, there is a, there is a legal right if the standards are met for that service animal to, animal to be present in the in the workplace and most employers are willing to engage in that process and think through that process and identify the best way to offer um, a service animal the opportunity to be with the human that it serves in order to allow that human to perform the essential functions of their job you know there's a point in almost every one of these podcasts where I get to that point during these discussions where I it it may seem like it's contrived, but the truth it it really does boil down to the truth, and that is that these are the types of decisions that are best made consulting with counsel and really looking having a legal practitioner look at it right. Um, Absolutely. And and you know, Krieg has a, a long history of representing employers, and our healthcare practice is um, extremely broad and robust. I know that there's more information on you and that practice on our website. Uh, as well as additional articles on not only this topic, but all sorts of topics. But it, nuance is a great way to put it. Uh, you know, I've often, I've often, this is not necessarily where I practice, but I've often thought and had to tell employers, really, you know, there are limits. The ADA is not yes. a get, out, get, get to do whatever you want provision. You know, you can't have a blind man driving a bus. Um, there, there are limits to what the law allows, but I did, you know, I do think that thoughtful discourse solves a lot of these problems. I would agree that thoughtful discourse is the beginning uh, of, of any good risk management approach. Most clients who we work with are not coming to us saying, we don't want this animal present in our facility. What they're saying is, we need to understand, number one, what are our legal obligations? And number two, what are the ways that we can craft a policy and a practice with respect to this issue that both supports our employee who has a specific need and then also supports the workplace as a whole yeah. and, and makes those two things work together in a way that benefits everyone, ideally. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Well, it's a fascinating issue, especially that miniature horse thing. I mean, that's, um, <laughs> you know, that's worth <laughs> that's worth the 20-some minute. Listen, in and of itself, if you've got uh, children or people, other people that love horses, I mean, uh, I think that's going to go go a long way. Well, it's funny because, I, you know, you don't think about that in terms of a service animal, and it actually came up sort of randomly one day about miniature horses and, whether you know, how <laughs> miniature horses are protected under the ADA, and then... Before you know it, we're off and running, and it is an interesting, uh, it's an interesting twist, and, and certainly miniature horses provide an important service, and they, they provide a lot of those same types of support that a, that a dog does. Well, Shelley, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. I know, thank you, George. Um, I know this is a good, a, a passionate area of your practice, and as I said, people can find out more about you and this area of the practice on our website. Absolutely. Um, let me know uh, if there's any further developments on this because yes. I think that following up on how this progresses uh, is going to be very interesting. To our listeners, thanks again for joining us, uh, the Krieg DeVault podcast, where we always look to bring you new information about the law and other interesting things like miniature horses.